Given and Giving, God's Perfect Perspective on Possessions. Let's begin with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us view everything that happens in this life from the perspective of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the regular parts of life is switching out the old for the new. When you think about the various things that in your life you've had to replace, which of those old new transformations was the most exciting for you? For example, maybe you've had your bar of soap get so small you can't use it anymore. So you get a new bar of soap and that's a replacement, something old and now something new or a toaster that maybe stopped working. So you get a new one and now you've replaced the old with something new. But it might also be something like a house. Maybe when you started off, you had a rather small home and, and then you moved and you were able to get a little bit bigger home. And so you replace the old with something new. Maybe it's a phone. You got the old phone, no longer useful, have a new phone to replace it socks, shirts, right? There are so many things that, that get old and then we have to replace them with something new. Now, as you think about like which of those is most exciting, you might think of like the home or a car or some of it just feels rather mundane. In fact, with old new transformations, some of them are essentially just replacing what isn't able to be used anymore. So there's no real improvement that comes with the new thing. It's just getting what you once had. But sometimes replacing an, a new for an old does involve not just like having the same thing you once had, but having something that's even better. Maybe it is that home that's better than your previous home or a phone that's better than a previous phone, right? As we think about what we're going to talk about today, it's very much that kind of framework of old and new. That there's something that God is going to give his children that is brand new. But it is not just a like another of what was old that had kind of gotten worn out. This new thing is transformative. It is so different from what the old was. We'll talk about that. But first, we're going to look back, as we've had the chance to engage on the topic of God's perfect perspective on our possessions, the perspective we want to have. We started off by noting that really everything that we have belongs to God, created everything at the beginning of the world, that all of those possessions were wonderful gifts from God, but how sin intruded and now all of a sudden we can have bad perspectives on God's possessions, but they're God's. He's given them to, to us. They are his gift. We then noted that possessions are a good thing. Remember Abraham who had 318 men who were capable of fighting and that meant that he might have had a corporation, Abram Inc. of, you know, maybe like 2,000 people. I mean, it, would have, it was a large group that Abram was responsible for. And what did he do with all of that wealth? He used it in order to be a blessing. He rescued Lot with his soldiers from the enemies. So to have wealth is not automatically to think, oh, like now I'm, I, I'm doing something wrong by having something. Abram had lots of things and he used those for, 
doing right. Now, that doesn't mean that wealth can't be a trap. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon reflected on all of his efforts to try to get happiness from wealth. And they just, they didn't work. Like everything he tried ended up not giving him a sense of satisfaction. What was his conclusion? Fearing the Lord is at the heart of a proper perspective on life. That we're doing everything we do out of respect and awe and appreciation for the Lord. And the Lord can graciously give us joy in the work that we do and allow us to enjoy what he has given us. But finally, the only thing that makes sense out of possessions is when we are viewing them in the way that the Lord would want us to view them. So if we know that possessions in themselves don't have to be bad, but we recognize that we are very, very much able to look at possessions in a wrong way. What does this say about like the decisions that we make today about our money, about our things. Jesus teaches us that we are to be thinkers. Remember that shrewd manager who knew that he was going to get fired, so he gave away all of his master's stuff before he got fired to make friends with people who would then welcome him once he got fired. And you're thinking, like, the owner of all that stuff must have been so angry. But in the story that Jesus tells, the owner praises the unjust, the guy who stole from him, manager, because he was a thinker. He had in mind his future objectives and he changed his behavior in the moment in order to meet those objectives. Jesus says sometimes believers aren't as smart as unbelievers on this. That unbelievers, they have their goals in life, wrong as they may be, they do everything to achieve them. Christians, be thinking about what your goals are. In fact, use worldly wealth to gain for yourselves friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Have an eternal perspective on your use of earthly, temporary things. Well, we realize that that sounds excellent. That's a good thing to do, but there's a sinful flesh inside of us that does not want to look at money in that way. And that's where when we studied 1 Timothy 6, we talked about how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It can take people in very dangerous directions. To reflect and think, you know, there have been times when I have thought just that wrong way about money is to confess our sins to the Lord. How thankful we are that Jesus came to die for sinners. And so, by God's grace, we have peace through Jesus. Our sins have been washed away and we're so eager to to be to say thank you, to show thanks. And one of the ways that we do that, well, in 1 Timothy 6, the apostle Paul encourages those who are rich in this present world to be generous, to be full of good deeds, and so to use our wealth in order to honor God. There is a godly path for physical possessions to be used to his glory. As we recognize the battle that we have over money and the strength that we get from forgiveness in Christ, now we, we move to 2 Corinthians 8, where we have an example of the gathering of money for God's purposes in a very special way. And this was that situation where Paul was gathering money for the Jerusalem Christians who were struggling to get enough to eat, and so he went around and gathered money, and people came along with him to carry that money. And Paul tells the Corinthians about a group of people, the Macedonians from northern Greece, who were begging him, you've got to give us the opportunity to give. <laughs> that seems crazy, but what Paul actually says is that it is God's gift to people 
that they want to give, they're excited to give, they have the ability to give, that giving is itself a gift of God's grace, like a, like a present that you might open at Christmas time where you want to rip off the paper, find out what's, what's inside. The gift of giving is what's inside. Well, that effort by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is, it's clear that there was an organization in place, that as we're gathering gifts for a special project, the feeding of Jerusalem Christians, or in our own day, some special project to pursue God's purposes here on earth, it makes perfect sense to be organized. Not because the people don't want to give and you're trying to force them into a situation where they just have to do it, but because those who want to give, having a structure for how to make it happen is very helpful. Not only is organization helpful, but finally, Paul says, this needs to be a decision of the heart. It's something that we want to do. And you might be thinking, yeah, like I know you talk like that, but in the end, what you're really trying to do is make me feel guilty for not having a heart that's in the right place. And so I think that's a sham. I think it's a trick. Now, now you know, in a, in a marriage relationship, the husband and his wife, when, when a husband does something nice for his wife, like, can it happen where he does it? Because he's, he's thinking, oh, like, I guess I have to do this. Well, if that ever were to happen, that's the sign of a relationship that is struggling. But by God's grace, when a husband loves his wife and he's thinking about doing something for her, he is simply thinking about, wow, like, what would be, what would be loving? What would be, well, it doesn't mean there are no parameters if you have a wonderful dinner on the night of your anniversary and then there's no money left to buy food for breakfast for the children the next day. That's, that is a problem, right? So there are parameters, but the point is that nothing's holding you back on the side of, I want to do whatever we, whatever I can to show my wife how much I love her. And, and that's the nature of the heart with Jesus. It's, we just, I mean, are there parameters? Certainly. But we're just trying to think of, wow, like how much can I do in order to give thanks to the Lord for all that he has done for me? The other thing that Paul talks about is how our giving is like planting seed. That you plant seed and you're not thinking, okay, I've got 25 seeds in the packet. I'm just going to put 15 in because I want to save those 10 for. It's like, for what? You plant as much as you can because you know that there's a harvest that is on its way. In a similar way, we plant. And when God does bless with other blessings, then we... It was, oh, well, now I've got even more seed to plant. In the end, as Christians follow this path, as the Macedonian Christians in northern Greece did, and then as the Corinthians would, the Jerusalem Christians are getting all of these gifts, and what can they do but say thank you to God, right? Because God is the one who gave the Macedonians and the Corinthians, but the Macedonians are what Paul talks about, the gift of giving. He gave them that gift, and now the Jerusalem Christians are the recipients of the gift, and so who are they going to thank? But God, thank you for giving this gift. In the end, glory, all glory goes to God. That is looking back. Now, we are going to look ahead. In Revelation chapter 21, so much has happened in Revelation up to this point, but when you get to Revelation 21, this is now the full-blown picture of what heaven is like. And if you've ever had a longing to be separate from all of the sinful flesh things inside of yourself and with others that you experience here on this earth, the day is coming. The wait one day will be over, right? Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Whatever this is, right? Old, new, this is completely new. Now, as you think about those thoughts that John shared, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, bride beautifully dressed, right? Every tear wiped away, first heaven and earth gone. When you think about those amazing descriptions of what heaven is like, you may look at what we have here and and say, like, this is wonderful. I'm so thankful for the things that I have or these blessings. Compare wonderful here with wonderful there. What's different? When we think about wonderful here, we can enjoy and be thankful and have wonderful times, right? But one of the features is that wonderful here always comes to an end. Whatever you anticipate it, it never lasts forever. What else is different about wonderful here? Well, it's like your sinful flesh can get in the way, right? Where you're thinking as a dad, I'm going to have this wonderful evening for our children. And you've selected a, a, a good, appropriate movie and the kids are excited. And now as the dad, uh, you know, like for me, sometimes this can be a very challenging spiritual struggle. I'm working on all the technology and then it doesn't work quite right. And there's questions as to why it's not working right. And I'm starting to feel frustrated. And then there might be some disagreements about who's sitting where and whether they will be having a blanket over them. And then finally, like as a dad, can you ever get to the point where you're like, you're telling people that you need to have fun. <laughs> She's feeling all of the the challenges of the moment, your, your longing to have this be just a beautiful, perfect, wonderful event is affected by your own sinful flesh and your impatience, right? And the sinful flesh of those around you. So wonderful now is just never, it's never perfect. What about wonderful then? Like part of the answer is we just have no idea. Like it's so beyond our comprehension what it will be like. But there will be no more sin. There, there will be no more temporariness, right? The wonderful then will be mind-blowing. The other little piece to this is the fact that God compares heaven to the image of a bride and her husband. What, what meaning there is behind that of all of the earthly events, right, that people are familiar with? Is it not the wedding which stands out? Like This is the, this is the event, the, the one that people plan for and spend lots of money and they're thinking about it for months ahead of time and the joy that is connected to a wedding the, the lord uses that imagery of special 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 to say that's what that's how exciting heaven is going to be you might imagine the imagery as like how excited the bride is for her groom and how excited we are to be with jesus forever and ever you might also think about the fact that 
God describes his children as the bride and he is the groom, and how that says something about the relationship between God and us. Like, he really loves us. It's, he, he can't wait to be with you and me forever in heaven. Right? The husband is looking forward to the bride so much of the imagery that God uses for heaven, right? Connected to the, the wedding. And what a wonderful reminder of how wonderful it will be. All right. Chapter 21, verses 6 to 8. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the, the second death. Well, it's like that, that last verse there, that was a little bit of a turn, wasn't it? About those who have rejected the Lord, who give evidence of that in their lives. You know, think about those words that John uses to describe those who are in the lake of burning sulfur. Unbelieving, cowardly, liars and idolaters. Can you think of ways that those words connect with sinful attitudes we can have about earthly possessions? By God's grace, one trusts that Jesus is his Savior. One is a believer. It seems strange to think about descriptions of those who will end up in hell, but, but our sinful flesh, the sinful flesh of a Christian, is, is an unbeliever. It is, it's a wicked part of us. Do we see these concepts, idolater, liar, cowardly, in the own, our own uh, negative, wrong views about possessions that arise from our sinful flesh. I mean, you can think about the idolatry one where we are tempted to love earthly things more than God. The, the liar, the deception, the fact that we tell ourselves, well, you know, don't worry. You don't, don't think about death and the fact that you're going to lose everything. Let's, just, let's pretend that that's not going to happen and have an attitude toward earthly things that is lying to yourself. Or cowardly. That, that I mean, someone who doesn't, trust Jesus, the fear of, well, what what is going to happen in the end? Or my time is running short. I need to quick act because I'm afraid that I'm going to run out of time and I need to get this and this and this and that will make me happy. Right? Sometimes we can feel that fear about the future and grab onto earthly things and not want to let go of anything earthly. These attitudes that are present with unbelievers can very much be a part of our sinful flesh. And so we, we confess to the Lord. We do not deserve his love. What, what a miracle it is that, that that's why Jesus came. He came for sinners. And in Jesus, he, he did pay for the sins of the entire world, including those negative attitudes that I can have in my own sinful heart. What 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 peace, what joy, that which gives me the ability to look forward to the last day, knowing that I am washed in the blood of Jesus. Well, now this the story as John records it goes in a slightly different direction. He he was given this vision of 
the new heaven and the new earth. But now like a tour guide shows up and says, John, we need to go somewhere and listen to this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. It's like, whoa, there's a lot there. But before we get to the lot, let's talk just about the very first verse where it says that um, the angel giving the tour to John was an angel who had just, in this vision of John, finished pouring out a terrifying judgment on the world. Tour guide for this beautiful thing had just finished pouring out the most severe judgment what comfort, what perspective comes from that reality? And has it ever happened as you, as you live in a sinful world where you have wondered, like, oh, like this feels so horrible. Like, I, how can God be just and loving? And all of these things are happening where you can begin to wonder whether clarity will ever come. Where you feel alone standing up for God's morality, for God's design. One wonderful takeaway is that God has not forgotten. The angel who's giving John the tour of here's what heaven looks like is the angel who had brought God's judgment. The day will come. All that is wrong, punished. All who have turned their backs on the true God, the consequences. So we're reminded that God does all things well. He hasn't forgotten that there does need to be judgment. He will bring it. And, and then as we, I mean, you mourn that, the fact that there will be those who are judged. And yet, it's also an encouragement to those by God's grace who are hanging on to the truth. This is the right thing. It's not like just whatever, you know, anything goes. This, it, it, it's clarifying. There will be an end and a moment in time when judgment occurs. And by God's grace, you know your Savior. By God's grace, you know what is right. And, and it's by God's grace that he reminds us, I'm going to take care of everything, both the judgment and the beautiful tour of heaven, which is now what you can reflect on. Like in verses 9 to 14 of Revelation 21, you can look at those details. What does that teach us? What do those details teach us about eternity with the Lord? I mean, one thing is, like it's so beautiful. It's like breathtaking. Whatever this is, it is it is marvelous. The fact that it's built on the foundation, uh, twelve foundations with the names of the twelve apostles. So there we realize that the work of the apostles, right? Jesus is the cornerstone. The church, the church, God's children are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Like what? As to their person. No, as to their message, the fact that they communicated, confessed the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. That is our foundation now. And the what you could say is the foundation of heaven, the foundation of God's children in heaven is the Bible. 
the Bible, the word of God, God's revelation to humanity, everything that he has told us that is true, the apostles and prophets communicating it, that is our foundation. Then, now, but there's more. Verse 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, it gives this picture. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city. <laughs> I'm like, wow, like how long did that take with a measuring rod to measure the whole city when the city was in width 1,400 miles and length 1,400 miles and in height 14, height 1,400 miles, right? It was this cube, that was the image. Actually, the numbers in Revelation are 12,000 stadia, which is about this 1,400-mile length. Twelve. That's the number that represents God's children, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. This is the family of believers. Twelve times 1,000, 10, is the number of completeness. Times 10, times 10. So 10 cubed, like completing the number of completeness times... 12, the number of God's children, the Christian family. What we have is the complete, the entire group of believers. That's what John is being shown. That here we have all of those who by God's grace trust in Jesus, have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. The entirety. Now, he then goes on to talk about what the city actually looked like. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, pure as glass, the Foundations decorated with every kind of precious stone and gives the names of those beautiful stones. And the gates, they were pearl. Like every gate was made of a single pearl. Like imagine how big that pearl would have to be. But there were 12 of them. And then the gates, the streets of the city, pure gold, like transparent glass. Like this imagery just overwhelms us. It, it overwhelms us with these various pieces that shout out wealth. They shout out riches. Now, what can that teach us about our perspective on wealth in this world? Well, the one thing you might say is that anything wealth related on this side of heaven just pales in comparison with what we're going to see someday. That is absolutely right. But also notice that as God wants to create a picture for us of awe and wonder, when we think about heaven, he actually uses earthly things. He uses gold and pearls and precious stones and because he knows that we appreciate the beauty, the value of those various things. Like who made those things? God made gold. God made pearls. God made precious stones. God came up with this beauty. And, and maybe that's just a little bit of a reminder as, as we need to know what is beautiful to understand what heaven is like in some like approximation that in the end I'm sure falls like it's just so much beyond our imagination but what does that tell us about those things that are valuable that that God God made those God made beauty God has given things that are attractive that naturally make us say wow that that beauty is not in itself contrary to God's design. It was God's design that we can appreciate those things and marvel at them and give praise to God because of them. Even as it is our prayer that we never pursue one of those beautiful things in the process of setting into second place what God has revealed about what is truly beautiful. But, but wow, 
heaven is going to be so overwhelming. And, and his description, John's description of this, I did not see a temple in the city, verse 22, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, the kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. Note, on, on no day will its gates ever be shut, because there will be no night. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. I mean, what, what do we have there at the end, this description of heaven where no temple, because God is there, and the glory of God is its light. It's all about the amazingness of our God. God is the greatest. Right now, it, it may sometimes seem hard to see that. But the fact is that one day you will see that. And, and while we wait, right now God is just as great. He's just as glorious. For us to remember that can help us as we think about our earthly possessions. In what way? How does remembering that God is just so unbelievably great help us as we think about possessions? I don't know if any of you have ever had the chance to have a conversation with someone famous, but if you have, like meeting, meeting them in the airport or somewhere else, you probably have told friends about this. Like, you're never going to believe who I met. And they talk to me and I talk to them, right? It's like a sense of awe. Can you imagine if God were to talk to you? Like the greatest ever that you were able to see him face to face. The fact is he does talk to us in his word, right? That's, we have the Bible. But understand who is on your side. Who is it that loves you? It's the greatest of ever, ever, ever. And, and when you think about that, and then you think about your earthly possessions, but you're still, you can't stop thinking about the fact that you know the greatest one ever. It, it's just so natural to think, wow, wow, I am loved by the greatest ever. My name, graciously, has been written in the book of life. What does that lead me, you, to say, to think, to do? I'm so overwhelmed. What can I do? How can I say thank you? How can I, how can I make it so clear that I love you, Lord? An old and a new. We live in the old. One day there will be something so new. And it is our vision of that, our understanding through the vision of the Apostle John, that we realize just how amazing eternity will be to know that and to know that we have a God who loves us and a God who is the greatest ever is for us to just very much understand how there's nothing that I would rather do than make his perfect perspective on possessions my own and to use all of the gifts that God has given me to his glory. Let's close with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to learn from you. Thank you for putting aside the lies and opening our eyes to the truth, to understand the perfect perspective on possessions given 
we have been given so much. Giving. We can't help but get going at the giving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.